Well, good morning. <clears throat> Would you take a seat, find your place? Maybe you've lost it for in the last three minutes. And <clears throat> good morning again, uh, beloved ones of God. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Kevin. Uh, I get to be one of the pastors here at Hillside, and we're here this morning to fix our attention on God. Convinced that, I'm convinced that, as we do, he will accomplish the fullness of his grace and his peace in our midst and shape us into a people that look like him. Uh, would you take the Bible that you brought with you this morning, maybe it's on your phone or you've got a good copy with you, and open it to Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, I did say Leviticus. Uh, it is the third book in the Bible. Uh, last week and this week, we are talking about what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. And he said it in two parts. So last week, we talked about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this week, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, as you're turning there, how many of you have ever felt like you don't belong somewhere? Look around. You belong at least in not belonging, hey? <laughs> Have you ever had that like creeping suspicion that you're the imposter or awkwardly laugh at a reference that you really don't understand because you're scared of being the misfit? Um, ever woken up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat worried that one day you'll be found out as a fraud? Um, when I, in my studies, I worked at a laboratory and was there most of my most of the time. <laughs> and I was sitting, we had this little office there, and I remember telling one of my colleagues, I said, you know, I don't really know if I'm supposed to, I don't think I'm actually that good of a scientist here. And my goodness, I just got to keep up this illusion so my professor doesn't realize this until at least I graduate. And then slowly, the other five people in the room all confess the same thing. <laughs> and whew, that was a relief. At least we all thought this. It's a remarkably common experience and it reflects a good desire. It's a good thing to want to belong. We're actually, the Bible says, not meant to be alone. But as good of a desire as that is, um, this morning you might be feeling a bit of a malaise, <laughs> this frustrating feeling that you haven't quite made it. Perhaps you've done all of the things that you're supposed to do to belong. You, you did your trade ticket, you went to the right college program, you networked with all the right people, you're making the salary that you thought you'd need, you followed the promise of the American dream, and for some of you, you've checked off every one of those boxes. You got married, you had your two kids and the dog, and maybe you even got a house. <laughs> and you've done all of the things that you were told would finally mean that you've made it that you belong, that you're somebody, that you're not only known but loved, but you don't feel like you're there yet. And there's something particularly tragic about that moment where all of your strategies actually worked, and your goals are accomplished, and you're almost satisfied. I think sometimes it's worse being almost satisfied than unsatisfied. And for some, that means that you look backward and think about all the if-only questions. And you probably know them well, because you've asked them and thought them well. If only, if only I had done this. If only, I wish that I had. 
Some of you, on the other end, have not checked off that list, and you're far from accomplishing the goals that you've set out for yourself. And so you look forward. If I could only do this, if I could only do that, then finally things would start working out well for me. Last week, Derwin mentioned that Harvard study that uh, reflected the, the creative intent of God, that relationships are the things that hold us together, that the study said that relationships positively predict, as the most positive predictor of flourishing and longevity. And I know for me, as a young single man, the frustrating part of that is, yes, I know. (laughs) I know that relationships are important. And my struggle is, and maybe your struggle is, that not the fear of a relationship, a fear of being known, but the fear that you'll die alone. If only I could have that relationship. Well, sisters and brothers, this morning I have good news for you. Actually, Jesus has good news for you. This morning I'd like to show you that the world that you'd always hoped for is exactly the kind of world that Jesus is already reigning over. And to see it, we will need to give up our old way of seeing things. So again, I want to show you that the world that you'd always hoped for is exactly the kind of world that Jesus is already in charge of, but we might need to change our perspective to see it. And I'd like to show you that, all of that, in Leviticus of all places, because that's where Jesus said that we could find it. So would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? And as I read this to you from the New International Version, uh, there's been a long-standing tradition in honor of God's name of translating his given name, Yahweh, as the Lord to honor him. Um, This morning, to help make sense of our text, I'm going to use his name, Yahweh, that he's given to us to, to speak to him. So if you notice that difference in your text, that's why. So Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, Yahweh your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am Yahweh your God. Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourself. I am Yahweh your God. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to Yahweh, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned up. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will not be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because they have desecrated what is holy to Yahweh, and they must be cut off from their people. And when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor. And the foreigner, I am Yahweh, your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name. And so profane the name of your God, I am Yahweh. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God, I am Yahweh. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am Yahweh. 
Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. O living God, thank you for your word. Would you accomplish your purposes in our hearts this morning? Would you open our ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church here at Hillside? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you take a seat? In our study in the book of Matthew, we've learned that when Jesus went about proclaiming his good news, he was not abolishing the law, but fulfilling it. He was not there to get rid of the Old Testament or Leviticus. He actually came to make it happen. So as we saw last week, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, it's really unsurprising that he quotes from two Old Testament texts. From the original instructions to the people of Israel, love Yahweh your God with all your heart from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus 19. Now this is important. Because in our world of all the newest innovations, you need to know that your God is the same. He is unchanging. And his moral vision for his people, that has, that's never changed. He summarizes what his moral vision is at the start of Leviticus. So this chapter starts with, Be holy like I am holy, Yahweh your God. And we look back, we learn from the story of Abraham that God is creating a people to become just like him so that the world can look at God's people and go, ah, that's what Yahweh must be like. As Dr. Carmen Imes would say, God's people wear his name. And so God tells his people, since I have created you to flourish, since I have rescued you from oppression, and since you now belong to me, and since you now wear my name, here's what I'm like. Be like me. So Jesus, when he lists these two commandments in the Gospels, love God, love neighbor, he's just repeating and reminding us of what's always been important. First, rightly remember who your God is. Second, be like that God. Here's how. In our text this morning, did you realize how every time God gives a command, his justification is, I am Yahweh. We don't often turn to a place like Leviticus in the Bible because sometimes it can feel intimidating. And as many of you are going through reading plans that will, in just a few short weeks, take you into these sections of law codes, it's helpful for us to pay attention to what God is doing. This is the word of God that Jesus in his very person is communicating. And the first five books of the Bible are full of all these kind of rules that, give, that God gives to the people of Israel to shape them to look like God. When we get to these kind of texts, these confusing ones, you're probably wondering why didn't Kevin just skip over that weird part about the third day of the sacrifice and when you're allowed to eat it and not... <laughs> Because that's, our intent, that's often what we do, and we ask questions of the text, and there's a few of them. The one question, which I think is the most common one that we as God's people often ask, and the one that I think is actually the least helpful, is the question, should we do this? Or put another way, does this text apply to us today? And sometimes we can get so caught up with that question that I think we miss out on the beauty of what the scriptures might be saying. 
The next most common question, I think, which I think might also be unhelpful, or not the most helpful one, is why is this in here? We might be looking for like a secret knowledge or some kind of hidden code or a life hack that will make our lives better because God must have had a reason to have done this. And trust me, he does. But I don't think it's the most important question because it assumes that God thinks through things exactly the same way we do and we should follow him once it makes sense to us. There are two questions that I think will open our heart and our affections for God's word in these sections. And they're these. The first one, how is this command forming Yahweh's people to be like him? And then what kind of God must Yahweh be if that's the kind of people who should represent him? Get those? How is this forming the people? And what does that say about their God? So when Jesus tells us to love your neighbor, he points to the passage that shows us how to do it. So let's look at these strange Old Testament laws and let's ask that question. How is this forming God's people? You'll notice that these laws in Leviticus are actually very similar to the Ten Commandments. And Deuteronomy, which Jesus also quoted, is also reframing kind of the Ten Commandments. Um, Carmen Imes, as she talks about the Ten Commandments particularly, um, she calls all these kind of rules Israel's Bill of Human Rights. She actually adds a caveat. It's the bill of other people's rights. So it is that on Sabbath, God says that in order for there to be true rest like he's created for us, because everyone needs it, not just the heads of the home or the wealthy, but the workers and the slaves and the housemakers and the children and the old, even the land and the animals get rest. Keep the Sabbath by making sure everyone else can keep the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother, because in order for the covenant community to exist like this, the people need to be able to honor their history and lineage, not least because all these commands are passed on from father and mother to their children. Don't murder, don't take revenge, because everybody has the right to their life in a fair trial. In a good Yahweh-like community, the people are free from their neighbor taking things into their own hands. Don't commit adultery. In a flourishing community, there needs to be trust. And if this people of God is to stay together, each neighbor has the right to their marriage being free from competition. And this reflects God's covenant faithfulness as well. Don't steal, rob, or deal unfairly. Well, if you think, in a world where forensic evidence wasn't really a thing, the testimony of somebody's word is even more important than it is now. Did I lose it? There we go. <laughs> In a flourishing community, each neighbor needs the right to not be victimized by false accusation, to be able to trust their neighbor at their word, and also to know that when someone does make an accusation, it's to be believed, because the people have agreed. I'm not going to give false testimony. Don't, don't covet your neighbor's anything. And don't hate your neighbor in your heart. Your actions by themselves aren't, aren't the only thing that forms this community. To have this kind of community, your heart needs to be oriented in the right direction, God says. 
This is even reflected in that weird section about when you can and can't eat a sacrifice. Um, it often slips our minds that in the Old Testament, most of the animal sacrifices were also community meals. So they'd make a sacrifice and then eat together as a community in the presence of the Lord to celebrate the relationship with God together. Like, like many other places in Scripture, God cautions us about hoarding the benefits of his promises. Trust him, yes, for your basic needs and even in your abundance day by day. Don't try and keep as much food as you can up until the third day, but trust God and basically have a bigger party with that food too. That's maybe my reading into it a little bit. But. The same goes for the fields and the vineyards. How much of our flourishing community hopes are broken because of profit maximization? Making sure that you glean every last bit of the wheat and every final grape, because it's mine, I grew it. No, no, a flourishing community means that even the poorest of your neighbors deserve to eat because he is their God, Yahweh. Wouldn't it be amazing to live in a community where everyone else is committed to doing these things? To walk around and go, ah, you know what? Nobody's going to kill me. Nobody's going to lie about me. People are going to care about my needs. I'm not going to go hungry. Uh, I'm part of a, a lineage that gets to be passed on. I'll get invited to the sacrifice meal afterwards. If this is the kind of community that Yahweh says would represent him well, what kind of God is he? When Jesus summarizes himself, he says that his good news is to proclaim this to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We're told that he is abounding in love and faithfulness. In Psalm 68, he says he puts the lonely into families. Now, it might be worth asking an important question here. This is all pre-Jesus. And if God is the same and has had the same moral vision for all of history, why Jesus? Why do we need Jesus? Well, as you think about these community commitments, you might have gotten suspicious. You might have also started to immediately think about how easy it would be to be taken advantage of. If you go in believing that everybody's going to hold these things true, and they don't, you're in a very vulnerable place. This is where somebody might shout out, shout out that's all well and good, but the criminals, they don't follow the laws. The Ten Commandments sound great if they're a moral legal code for the individual, but they're risky if you're supposed to trust that those around you are actually following them. And throughout Scripture, God's people don't follow them. And they end up wearing the name of the Lord their God in vain. The Apostle Paul in Romans wrestles with this quite a lot in chapter 8. He concludes that everything about the law, about this part of the Bible, is good and from God. The problem is, is that knowing the rules doesn't transform us into a people who look like God. Because for God, the goal is not reformation, but transformation. There is, I'm sorry, there is no world in which Christianity is just a good self-improvement scheme. 
once we encounter the living God, he will actually save us from ourselves. That's part of the oppression that we live under. So Paul says in Romans 8 that God in Christ did what the law couldn't do. By Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and eternal reign, sin is dead and death is beaten. And through the transformative power of God, through his spirit, this law now moves from here to in here. It says he's written it on our hearts. Without Jesus, this kind of desire for self-sacrificial community would be terrifying because you know people. (laughs) They are notoriously out for themselves, which is why if we mistakenly put our hopes in our rights or if we put our hopes in the hands of others, we will be disappointed, just like they will be disappointed to put their hopes in us. Uh, The pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that if we love our dream of Christian community more than the Christian community itself, more than the Jesus who forms it, we actually end up destroying it because we put all that weight on the responsibility of the other people around us. The covenant of Yahweh with his people is good. It is formational. It is radical. And it cannot be separated out from the Yahweh your God who has entered humanity in the person of Jesus. This is why these laws, just by following themselves, just don't work. Which is why we truly believe this kind of community can be approached, but not fully achieved without Jesus. The reason that I belong as a sibling to you and I, adopted child of Jesus, is because I belong to Jesus. Because I believe and trust in him. If you're here this morning and you haven't decided to put all of your hope on Jesus there's probably a very real sense where you kind of will feel like you don't belong in the Christian community. I hope you get to see and experience the welcome and beauty and richness, and I hope that when you come to Hillside, the table is set and beautiful and inviting for you. But the reality is, you're not quite family. Now, I know that sounds really offensive. (laughs) But just pause for a second and think, how ridiculous would Christianity be if there wasn't a significant change moment that Jesus made? There's no point for me being up here proclaiming the good news if I didn't think that it made a difference to follow him. As a church, as the people of God, we're not here to create unnecessary tensions or to exclude those who haven't met Jesus. That would also be absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) I came to know Jesus because I was welcomed before I knew him. I just want you to know that if you feel like you really want to belong to this family and you feel like, I don't know why I don't quite, that that might be normal. And my goodness, we want to introduce you to him (laughs) because being adopted by Jesus is the best thing ever. Christ reminds us in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and reign that he has never not even in Leviticus, asked us to put our hopes in other people, but in God, radically trusting him to create the kind of community that flourishes. So let's move back from the central question. (laughs) If this is the kind of God that Yahweh is, and if these things in Leviticus were formational practices to shape a unified people of God, 
how are we being shaped to be a different kind of people? We all have formational things in our lives, and what are those doing to shape us? And maybe what does that say about the God that we serve? I sometimes wonder if you were to list out all of the goals that you have for your life and for your kids and for your family and what success would look like, and if you did that as a follower of Jesus and then laid them out beside somebody who didn't know Jesus at all, would there be a difference? Is there a difference that Jesus has made in your life? Um, we asked this at youth on Friday night. Has Jesus turned your world upside down? Has he made a difference? He has for me. Um, when I went to live in Quebec for a season, there were many cultural elements that I had to get used to. Uh, one of them being the custom of kissing on the cheeks when greeting people. My church experience shifted from shaking people's hands to being embraced and being kissed on the cheeks by many of the older women in the congregation. Um, it, it took a bit when I came back to Chilliwack. I was like, oh no, it, it's a handshake. Okay. <laughs> so, or when I visited a friend in a particular part of England, I was told, well, you always know when the Canadians are over because there's a big pile of shoes left by the front door. As a teaching assistant, I learned that when students from some cultures handed me their papers with both hands, it was a sign of respect and honor, and I should make sure to receive that paper back with both hands as well. What am I on about? <laughs> Jesus has declared that not only is he the God who took us out of slavery in Egypt, he's the king who reigns the right hand of God over a kingdom that is already underway. As Christians, we are like residents of this world and like aliens. Because our citizenship is in heaven, we should actually experience a bit of culture shock when our culture interacts with the culture of the world. Not to be unnecessarily weird, just, you know, a Jesus level of weird. <laughs> we asked of the Leviticus text, how is this forming Yahweh's people? And it's worth asking in our context, what are our values? How are they forming us? And how should we be being formed? We've been interacting with these questions a lot over the last years that we've been going through the book of Matthew. And there are a lot of things we could consider, but in the remaining time we have, um, I'd like us to particularly think about our cultural pressure toward individualism. In our Western, North American, post-Enlightenment, 21st century culture, and by the way, not everybody in the world thinks the same way that we do here in Vancouver, <laughs> we put an intense priority on the self. Um, if we think back to those questions I asked at the beginning, the if I had only or if I could only, most of those questions reflect around decisions that impact me. <laughs> um, whether I'm being fulfilled in my work or have created my own family, become financially independent. One of the reasons that we find Leviticus difficult to grapple with is how much it focuses on the community life. <laughs> We're like, well, how does this sacrifice law apply to me? It's not supposed to. It's supposed to apply to your family, <laughs> your people. From the moment God created humans, we've been created for intimacy and community. It's not good for a human to be alone. And from creation onward, all God does is put people into covenant communities. Abraham gets made into a people. Israel's 12 tribes. Jesus, when he chooses disciples, he picks from the most bizarre group of people. He picks one person who, like, riotously hated the government and somebody else who was the government. He's like, you guys are now family. <laughs> He puts us into communities, and 
when the gift of the Holy Spirit comes, he creates the church. Do you know that in Scripture, there are three relationships that are described as several becoming one? One of them is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Next is marriage, where he says, because God made them male and female, the two become one, joined together, and thereby inseparable, Jesus says. The third relationship, the church. One body and many members. Hillside, there's a real true sense that as one body, as the people of God, adopted by him, we become one. And this is an area I think we might need to work on. Not just here, but just as North American Christians in general. You see, when we talk about family and family values and the role of family, you notice that we typically mean biology, genetics. You know, our, our little family that lives in our little condo, just like they did in Jerusalem. <laughs> Didn't, by the way. <laughs> it was a joke. Um, imagine, like, uh, imagine, you know, Christmas time when everybody was there. That. <laughs> the whole group, the whole family, the people who worked for you, even lived with you. Yeah, figure that out. This is strange that we do this. It feels normal because of our culture. It's strange that we do this if we believe that we are, at our fundamental identity, adopted sons and daughters of the king. Do you know that this is one of the things that the early followers of Jesus got in trouble for? Early historians record that Roman society was disturbed because Christians called one another brother and sister, and then they married each other. It was not just a normal thing to call someone your brother and sister if they weren't your immediate family, unless you were adopted in, and then you would. So for those people, the early Christians, whose lives were turned upside down by Jesus, for the people who actually believed that they were adopted brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God, what else would you call one another? Which, by the way, parents... Um, is why I think as Christians we should have no tolerance for us or our kids making jokes about being adopted. You know how kids do that? Oh, but you're adopted, as if that would be a bad thing. There is no greater status of honor than to be known as adopted. It's also why I didn't encourage any of you who are considering being parents to seriously consider adoption not as a second option, but as a mimic of our king. If you have decided to entrust your life to Jesus, you have been adopted into this family of his. And the question for us today is, does it feel like it? How good are we at practicing this? In Mark chapter 10, we see the story of a man who would not give up his great wealth in order to follow Jesus, because he trusted his money most of all. And so the disciples, in classic form, start listing off all the things that they gave up to follow Jesus, maybe to get some extra credit. It's like, oh, but we gave up many things for you, Jesus, and that's why we're following you. 
And he responds to them like this. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much. In this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come in eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I want to speak to you from my experience as a single man for a moment, knowing that I speak on behalf of many others. In our appropriate emphasis on marriage and the family, I think, I think, we might have imported our culture of individualism into the church. I've spoken before about how the world around us feeds us the narrative that love, and, that love is ultimately a sexual and romantic thing, and the goal of human fulfillment is to live happily ever after, coupled in a romantic relationship. Now, as I've said before, that is a beautiful, it's one of the ways, like one of the three pictures that God's given us about his relationship to us. It is a good thing. But it's not the only way of being human. Would the people among us who have given up this idea of the good life for Jesus' sake, would those who, because they want to follow Jesus, have been rejected by their biological family or have put aside the hope of a biological family, would those Christians come to Hillside and respond, this is 100 times better than what I gave up. How much of a family are we? The early church's response to this idea was that they, in essence, started sharing all of their finances together, liberating their slaves, becoming a family, shared resources, shared income, shared purpose, shared mission. Uh, Greg Johnson, who's a single Christian man, says this. He says, Christian friendship is huge. Yet even more foundational is the biblical paradigm of brotherhood. As the adopted family of Jesus, we who are united to him are kin. That means not only family duties and obligations to one another, but also family intimacy, closeness. We need spiritual siblings who are our sisters and brothers, not only spiritually, but experientially. A brother is someone who knows what you smell like in the morning. A brother is someone who knows what you eat for breakfast. A brother is someone who knows what you look like at the end of the day. A brother is someone you don't have to get dressed up for. A brother is someone who knows what you're facing with your health. A brother knows your insecurities. A brother can call you on the carpet when you're wrong. A brother will defend you publicly. A brother will let you borrow his car. A brother is someone you can go off and do something adventurous with. A brother will carry you to your grave as you face your final calling in this life. Sisters, brothers, there have been times in history where the church truly believed Jesus' words to the degree that they behaved like actual family. Because to be adopted, even in Roman society, meant to become real, full, inheriting members of that family with all its responsibilities and privileges. But the forming narratives of our world are going to experience culture shock when they see those things among us. Let me tell you, if you behave like this people, people are going to think you're weird. 
What if the single people in our church didn't need to live alone until they achieved family through marriage? What if the poor in our church never had to think about where their next meal was coming from because they have fridge privileges in your home? Because they're your brother or sister in ways that are closer than even your real brother and sister are. What if deciding to follow Jesus actually felt like adoption into the family that you'd always hoped you'd have? This is hard to do as a large group, at least to start off with. And I want to suggest that you join a small group to start this process. Struggle through it as a small group. This week, maybe, as you meet, ask yourself the questions that this text of Scripture compel us to. Do we really believe that we're a family? And what would it look like if we acted like it? And if we became that kind of radically countercultural community, how much of a statement would that be to the watching world? It's well documented that we live in one of the loneliest and socially cold regions on the face of the planet. As we preach Christ, and as people are confronted with dying to themselves for his sake, what if they looked in on the family of Hillside and thought, but, but, but I, I get to belong to something like that? <laughs> That's 100% better anyways. In our suspicions about other people, leaders and lords, we can often harbor this fear that God really doesn't have our best interests in mind. Why would he cause us to feel the tension and the almostness that we do if he really wanted our flourishing? But sisters and brothers, do you see the beauty of this vision? Do you see how good God is? When the steadfast, unchanging God demonstrates the ultimacy of his plan at the end of Scripture, because he's the unchanging God, when we see the trajectory of what this looks like, what his kingdom, the church, looks like, it looks like this, which I'm going to read to close from Revelation chapter 21, where we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. The Spirit of the living God, um, thank you for the type of God that you are. Lord, who in our following you actually puts us into communities and families. Lord, to shape us into people who would actually represent your loving relationship well. 
And Lord, we want to do this well. Um, there are many things, Lord, that we might be considering about what it might look like to look like a family, to take that risk of trusting you by believing one another, the people beside us in our seats, to be brothers and sisters. Lord, guide us as your community to, to really believe this and to see the good news of what it means. Lord, would you shape us and would the world look in on what's going on here by your spirit and think this is a hundred times better. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.